This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Gemma Whelan. She has two novels, Painting Through the Dark and Fiona's Stolen Child. She's the founding artistic director of Wild Irish Productions in San Francisco, the artistic director of Corrib Theater in Portland. She has a short film, The Wake, and two screenplays that have won awards. Have either of the screenplays been optioned at this point? Actually, they happened, and both of those screenplays ended up as my two novels. They started life as screenplays, and I decided to turn them into novels. Let's start, I guess, by talking a little about your career as a writer and as someone in theater and in film, and also your background. Much like Ashling in Panting Through the Dark and Fiona, you're originally from Ireland, right? Yes, that's right. I am. Where were you born and what brought you to America and how old were you? So I was actually born in the Midlands of Ireland, County Leash. It's about 45 miles from Dublin, which is where I went to college. Unlike Ashling, who was actually from the West Coast of Ireland, she's from Mayo, a more traditional part of the country. I was 21 when I came here several decades ago. And I left really because the Ireland at the time was very, very Catholic in a narrow sense. There were very few opportunities for women. And I sensed that I want something different for my life. I didn't necessarily know that I was going to leave forever. I came, as many people do, for the summer. And Ashling came on a three-month visa. And I actually came on a three-month student, student visa also. What year was that for you? I came in 76. So Ashling is a little bit younger than you because her, uh, her date is 1982, which we'll get to in a minute. So when you were over there, is her background having a predatory priest and an evil nun, is that any of your background? No, it isn't, except it is very much part of Irish culture in the past. I did not join a, a convent like Ashling did. She's training to be a nun. But I did go to boarding school. I went to a convent boarding school. And, you know, all schools in Ireland until very recently were completely run by uh, the religious orders. In terms of the, the predatory part, you may know that there have been huge scandals, which really started to come out towards the end of the 80s, but really more than 90s. And this century also, there were abuses that were revealed that took place across the Irish countryside in institutions run by priests and nuns and Christian brothers too. Those you know, scandals have been unearthed. A lot of changes have been made. In present-day Ireland, there's been a lot of advances, but there were huge investigations and people held accountable. I don't know if you know about the Magdalene Laundries, which I do reference in the book, but, you know, it was a very punitive um, system. When you got over here and decided to stay, was, was it right to San Francisco, and did you encounter those first days similar to Ashling's looking around for a hostel, trying to figure out what to do? 
my situation was a bit different. I actually came to the East Coast to New York because that's the only place I could I couldn't have afforded a ticket out west. And I so I flew to New York. And before I came, I had a sponsor who had written a letter for me and was sponsoring me coming over. And they actually moved. They left the country. So very shortly before I came, I didn't know that there was going to be anybody here. So in the back of my mind, my plan was, I'll get there, I'll find a YMCA. I'll, um, mind you, I had $40. I'll find a YMCA and then I'll buy the newspaper and I'll get a job. That was my plan. So Ashling, it's a somewhat similar, you find out in the, near the beginning of the book that she did have a person who was supposed to be there but doesn't show up. So I played with that a bit. And in my case, about two weeks before I left or a week and a half, I was introduced to this young woman who was flying over to New York to stay with relatives for a few weeks. And a mutual friend thought we'd get on well. And she did invite me to, you know, to fly with her and to stay with her relatives for a week or two. But when I get on the plane at Dublin airport, she did, first of all, she wasn't at the airport. We, we found out that our flights were the same day, but I arrived at the airport. She wasn't there. So I got on the plane, actually, not knowing if there was going to be anybody here at all to meet me. So it was a little bit of a mystery. It turns out that she was on, I was on a student charter flight and she was on a regular flight and she'd arrived several hours before me, but she did actually wait. That must have been a little scary, especially coming from, you know, the middle of Ireland to suddenly find yourself in New York City and kind of at loose ends until you guys connected. Yeah, it, it, it was. And at the same time, you know, as I'm in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, I'm on the plane and I thought, well, okay, I'm back to my original plan. I'll, I, I didn't even know what a YMCA was really, except I knew they had cheap rooms, right? That's what I was told. So I figured I would, I would figure it out. And then as it turns out, she did meet me, but I wasn't able to stay very long. And I very quickly bought the New York Times, got myself a job. And actually, that job was on Long Island. And part of what happened there is the basis for the story in Ashling. I, I transposed it to, to San Francisco in California. Were you trying to be a painter at that point like her? No, I was not. I have never been. I have zero skills in painting. So no, I was not trying to be a painter. That is entirely fictional. It's entirely made up. I knew she was going to be an artist of some kind, but I didn't know until I started writing. What was happening on Long Island and where on the island was it? It was actually uh, Northport is the name of the place. And, you know, I don't want to give away too much of what happens in the book, but I did actually find myself trapped in a somewhat similar situation. I mean, all the details are not the same, but the essence of it or the feeling of it was real, that there was this family who was very predatory and quite a few men, male family members involved, who basically tried to coerce me into areas that I did not want to go. Gemma Whelan, as I was reading the book, I kept thinking of Jane Eyre that the whole thing had a kind of Bronte feel about it, and it didn't occur to me that it might actually be autobiographical. Yeah, yeah. The feeling of it is, you know, the, the, just the emotions and psychologically what was happening 
that's on the mark. I mean, that is what happened to me. Yeah. And of course, Jane Eyre is referenced in the book very briefly. As you were either writing the screenplay, which became the book, or when you are trapped in Northport, did Jane Eyre come into your mind? No. It's interesting. The screenplay that I wrote in initially, and this was in the, I was at uh, film school at San Francisco State in the mid-90s when I started writing it. I was in the um, MFA program there. So it was initially called Letters Home. And my idea was the distance between at that point, people did actually write letters home because there was no, no money for phone calls, you know, in the late 70s and in, through the 80s, really. So it was prohibitive to call. It would never have occurred to me to tell my family I was in trouble because I was here and I, you know, had come on my own and I was needed to make a go of it. And it would have scared them. And they were 6,000 miles away. So, you know, what could they do? And I, you know, I was in a situation where I had a job, I really wanted to save up some money, so then I could have the option of doing something, you know, of moving, of getting out of there, if I could. When you finally escaped, is that when you came to San Francisco? You know, I got out of that place. And then I did get a job. I worked in New York for a year. I stayed for a whole year. And then at the end of the year, I... Still didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And actually, I did think about going back to Ireland and studying art history. So in terms of, you know, curation and because I love I love art and I love I appreciate art very much, but never being a, a painter, that was never an ambition of mine. I'm not that foolish. I know my own skills. So but I really wanted to see San Francisco. I had this thing in my mind that I really wanted to see California, specifically San Francisco. So in the same New York Times that I'd gotten the first job from, I put in an ad. And the ad basically said that I wanted my fare paid to uh, California and a job here for the summer. And I got a job in San Francisco for the summer, and I never left. What was the job? The job was actually with a family. I was babysitting a four-year-old and a six-year-old. It was the easiest job because they were in summer camp all day. And I just sort of had to be there when they got home. That family are still very close friends of mine. Gemma Whelan, at that point, you're in San Francisco. It's, I guess, a year or two later, and you were eventually going to decide to go to college. And at that point, were you thinking about writing? Were you thinking about theater? What was your background in both subjects? I mean, I had a BA in English and French, and I had studied some art history as well at Trinity college in Dublin. I was in San Francisco about two weeks and I made inquiries about acting classes because I really wanted to try theater. And I ended up taking classes at ACT, American Conservatory Theater. And on my very first acting class, as I was lying on this gorgeous hardwood floor with the California sun. It was on Geary Street at the time. California sun streaming in and we were doing breathing exercises and we'd been talking about character. I decided, I knew that I wanted to do theater right at that moment. And I continued to, you know, take classes. I did some acting out at the Irish Cultural Center out by the ocean. And at the same time, I applied to graduate program at UC Berkeley and was accepted. It was a, it was a director, a director scholar um, graduate program. 
with no idea, by the way, how hard it was to get in. I, I was clueless because I, I didn't realize that it was really hard to get in, that they only accepted, you know, a certain number of people and the attrition rate was really high. And I only applied to one school because I was in love with the Bay Area and I didn't want to leave. Luckily, I got in. At what point did you decide that you would try your own theater company? I had been doing theater for, you know, many, many years and I had been directing. I'd even, I had self-produced actually some shows and I'd been hired to direct. And um, I also had directed at colleges at the time. I had enough experience where I felt comfortable saying, initially, I didn't want to be pegged as an Irish director, you know, because people would say, oh, you're Irish, so you must direct Irish plays. And I'd say, no, I don't direct Irish plays. <laughs> so it took a while before I felt that I was a director. So therefore, it's okay if I direct Irish plays, you know, I wasn't going to get pigeonholed. So I actually founded a theater company, Wild Irish Productions, that's Wild with an E as an Oscar. And we performed for several years at the Berkeley City Club, the Julia Morgan building. Central Works is there now, a wonderful company that's been around for 30 years. So, and they hosted us for the very first show that I did there, which was actually a show about Oscar Wilde. At some point, there's a KPFA connection because your husband, Adam Lieberman, worked at KPFA. You guys met, and I would assume you were at KPFA at one point or another. You must have been. Oh, I've been at KPFA many times. And in fact, I have done interviews at KPFA, theater-related interviews. I love KPFA. I mean, KPFA is great. And it was so wonderful. You know, I met Adam because he did the sound design on a show that I was directing in San Francisco. And I was looking for a sound designer. And somebody said, oh, there's these, this great sound designer. And it was Adam. So we worked on a show together and we were friends for many years before we got together as a couple. Gemma Whelan, getting back to these screenplays, was the first one the one that became Painting Through the Dark or was it Fiona? It was Fiona. What brought you to write the screenplay and then what happened? You know, the MFA program was for directing and since it was San Francisco State, it was very much, you know, an independent directing model. So I knew, I mean, I had been directing theater for many years and I love film and I really wanted to learn about film. But I realized also that, especially in the independent world, that the directors, I thought I'd have, you know, a stronger, basically a stronger case that I'd have more cachet if I wrote as well as directed, if I had scripts. And I had always wanted to write. I had always wanted to write, but just didn't have the confidence to write. And I started there and I had some, you know, really good teachers. And in fact, I started writing a version of Fiona or just some scenes in a play. I took a playwriting class and the um, professor said to me, this seems very visual. And I said, well, that's very interesting because I'm a film student. So, you know, I'm in the MFA film program. So I ended up taking a screenwriting class and developing it in the screenwriting class. And then Fiona actually became my thesis, the screenplay, along with the film that you mentioned, The Wake, is a 15-minute short that I wrote and directed and edited. And it's based on a scene, what became eventually Fiona Stolen Child. So at what point did you realize this is a novel, or had you written the second screenplay by then? No, I hadn't. So the Fiona screenplay, 
I sent it to several film producers in Ireland, and it did win a prize here, as you mentioned, which is very nice. That was in L.A., and several of them wrote back to they wrote back very nice letters. So it's, first of all, it's nice even to hear back, right? And they said, you know, this seems like it should be a novel, this story, because of the psychological aspects of it. And you'd be able to flesh it out more in that respect as a novel. So I thought, oh, great, here I have the screenplay that I wanted to make into a film. And now everybody's telling me it should be a novel. But I was intrigued and, and set about writing it as a novel. And I finished that process after I had moved to Portland, which was in 2008, because I moved here really as a mid-career director, but nobody knew me. When you, you know, come to a new place as an actor, you can audition. People can see your work. If you're a filmmaker, you can show your reel, right? Or you can show your, show your films. But as a theater director, there's nothing to actually to show. I mean, you can show them a portfolio with photos and, and, and so on. So while I was waiting to just do some work and get established here, I decided to see if I could get back and turn the screenplay into a novel. And I did. And it was published. At which point, rather than write a second novel, you started on a second screenplay? No. So I had written a version of the screenplay when I was at San Francisco State, the, the one that was called Letters Home. I'm not sure if I finished the sentence that the letters home was the discrepancy between what you actually say in a letter, right? And then what's really going on. That was the basis. But I like painting through the dark better. So after Fiona was published, you figured you'd pull out the other one and you began going, hey, I can do something with this. Yes. And I also started with a writing group, a small group of people. What happened was that somebody, just as my first novel was being published, I was approached by a couple of writers here who had heard about me. Some of them were also involved in theater, but they wanted to write, well, fiction and memoir. So I was invited to join. It was really only four people in the group. It was very small, and we um, got on really well. And in that group, I, I developed my novel, my second novel, which became Painting Through the Dark. Once you realized you were going to do it, what kind of problems did you see in the adaptation? Usually an adaptation, of course, goes from book to film. But when you're going from film to book, what exactly did you see you could do? And what did you see you couldn't do in the translation? As you said, in a novel, first of all, you have time to develop. And I had to learn that is like, I don't have to rush, you know, it doesn't have to be because screenplays are so succinct. And it's also really important in screenplays that, I mean, you have the dialogue and then you have small amounts of description. And in the description, you can only suggest, you suggest what the visuals might be. So in really good description, it'll be quite visual so that when the other people who are working on the film, whoever is working on it, the lights, camera, and production design, that they will, they will get an idea what you want. In the novel, I got to really flesh that out. The other thing in a novel is I really had to, because dialogue, when you write dialogue for, it's the same for plays, and you write them for screenplays, it's a blueprint. It's not a finished product. Somebody is going to take that screenplay, and then they are going to create because the ultimate ultimately it'll become a film and a lot of people especially on a big production but um, even on small productions there are usually a lot of people involved 
in making decisions, how it gets developed. But for a novel, you have to do all the work, right? As the novelist has to do all the work, you, you can't depend on a director saying, okay, here's this line, but you know, this, or, and an actor working with an actor saying, but you know, the subtext is. So we would bring out the subtext when we say the line. You don't have people, live actors, reading your novels out loud. It's a, it's a single person, a single mind who opens your book and they read it and you have to make sure that they hear the voices in their head and also that they understand what's going on underneath. And of course, that's just where you can, you can actually tell people thoughts. You know, you can describe or show what people are thinking. This book is close third person. Had you considered maybe making it first person? And if, if not, why? I didn't. I never really considered making first. Well, first person is tricky. It's how do I put it? Um, I mean, you're more restricted because everything is from the point of view of that person. And even though mine is, as you said, a very close third, that gives you more scope in terms of, you know, the surroundings or things that are happening. I mean, it's still pretty much everything your character sees. But yeah, I don't know if I'm explaining it very well, but I felt I needed that extra scope um, and somewhat larger, you know, vision for Ashling. When did you turn it into a novel? What years was that? Really, I wrote it over the last several years. And I had been working on it. I mean, I don't write, you know, I didn't have the luxury of writing because I also was, had founded a theater company here in Portland. So I was very busy and have a family. So I wrote when I could. I, I stole time to really try and, um, you know, do more and more drafts and just getting through the drafts of this. And I finished it probably about two years ago and then started sending it out. Gemma Whelan, when you got to Portland 2008, when you and Adam moved to Portland, how hard was it to get Carib Theater open? And do I have the pronunciation right? It's Carib Theater. Carib, yeah, it's an Irish word. And it's um, it's actually the, the river and the lake that Galway, the city of Galway is on. Galway's in the west of Ireland. I don't know if it was hard. It took many years to develop, to develop it because I had to learn everything. Fundraising, all sorts of fundraising, had to learn the whole business end of it. And I, as I said, because I had produced in the Bay Area, I had my own company and I'd also produced at, you know, I worked at Mills College for years. I worked at other colleges and I had produced and directed plays for them. I ran a few theater departments along the way at colleges and universities. So I, I was familiar with producing, but then, you know, you have to learn the specifics of the particular area that you're in. So it took me several years really to get it off the ground. And we started by doing readings. Actually, I started by doing one reading because I, and I didn't know if there was an appetite for contemporary Irish theater necessarily in Portland and found out that there was a very enthusiastic audience for it. And my focus was contemporary because, you know, a lot of the bigger companies do, there are a lot of famous Irish writers, of course, and, but playwrights, and they are done on Broadway and off Broadway. And they, so they travel especially to the East Coast. 
And I really was interested in doing lesser known voices, women, playwrights, who you wouldn't necessarily have heard of, but who are amazing. That was my focus. Initially, it was me. And then eventually, I was able to get some you know, small funding for my job. And eventually, it grew so that Adam became the managing director. He was available at the time when I was ready for a managing director. And it turned out that he was able to, to do that and then got funding for them. So, you know, it's now 10 years. Last year was the 10th anniversary and we passed it on. We hired people to replace us. So you're not the artistic director anymore? I am not. I am, but I will always be the founding artistic director. What happened in March of 2020? Theater shut down. We commissioned several audio plays from Irish playwrights. So we raised money to have three plays done, and then we produced them. We raised money, actually, because there was money available to help theaters out. So we actually were able to buy professional equipment, sound equipment. We rehearsed over Zoom and did several. So not ideal. And the reason I went that way rather than, you know, Zoom theater it was audio. I mean, there were audios because I love radio. I've always loved radio. I just liked that idea. And, and in some ways, it felt closer to me, for me personally, than doing, because a lot of people pivoted to doing plays on Zoom. I watched plays on Zoom, I, and some of them I enjoyed, but I was more interested in, you know, listening. Since I couldn't be, you know, in the live theater with people, that was the way that I decided to go. You know, partly we did not have a venue. We are nomadic. Sometimes we've performed for a couple of years at a time in one theater. And in fact, now we are in a theater space. I'm, I say, I'm still saying we. I say that because I just got back from rehearsal because I'm actually directing their next show. And I just started directing it. So for Karup Theater. But just as a, just as a guest director, which is very nice. I don't have to produce it. But because of that, there wasn't a venue. You know, I didn't have to pay a mortgage, right? And that was a big deal. And then the government had a lot of funding. And we wrote a lot of grants and took, you know, basically availed of the funding so that the company would be, would be strong. What prompted you to leave the company? That's a complicated question. You know, during COVID, right, many people began to rethink their priorities Partly, it was uh, 10 seemed like a good round number and a time maybe to pass it on to somebody younger and who would hopefully take it into the next, into its next phase. I also wanted more time for writing. So it was a combination of those things that I felt I needed more. You know, producing is hard. It's a lot of pressure. Fundraising is hard. I never really set out to be a producer, you know. I've, I'm always I'm more interested in the in the directing side of it, but I enjoyed it, and I feel you know I'm very proud we founded this company. But I was also happy not to have to constantly. You know, it's a nonprofit, and the nonprofit world, as you know, is hard because you're always trying to raise money. Well, Gemma Whelan, do you have other uh, screenplays that you can now keep turning into novels, or do you have to start from scratch? I have no more. I have no more screenplays. That's the end of it. So I'm, I'm working on a new novel right now. And I had to start, alas, had to start from scratch. I have a, a draft of that and I'm reworking it. I just keep going. Painting Through the Dark and Fiona, are both of them, uh, have both of them been optioned or 
is that still now open to be able to go back to the original screenplays? Yeah, well, it would be a different screenplay, you know, because the novels changed so much as I wrote them. There are different characters. There's there's even different plot lines in some of them. I mean, I, I would say maybe the overall shape is different, but but so much has changed. So if I were to do that, constantly people say to me that they're both very visual. Fiona even has a screenplay element to it. No, I'd love them both to be filmed. So if you know anybody, if anybody is out there who is looking to option, I've got I've got two novels. But if I were to write the screenplay, it would um, I think I'd have to start from I mean, I'd have to start from the novels. You know, I'd have to sort of start not from scratch, but from the novels. These books are set in the past, but their resonances in the present, obviously, in painting through the dark, there are a lot of resonances to the Me Too movement. Though it sounds to me like that was not in the back of your mind, or as the rewrites went on, was it? As the rewrites went on, it definitely was. And of course, you know, this happened in a pre-Me Too era. And my first drafts were definitely pre, you know, Me Too. But I was very aware going back over it. I mean, I think it's there. It's already there in the story, right? The reason Me, Me Too just didn't pop out of nowhere. Me Too grew out of um, years and years and years of misogyny. I was aware in the draft because it was interesting going back, being obviously in our present time. And I, and I would say, you know, the other strand in terms of the, um, the religious, you know, and the abuse, a lot of that has now come out. It wasn't really out in Ashling's time. She knew it because people knew these things were going on. You know, they were aware. It's like the Magdalene Laundries and a lot of the abuse all over industrial schools. People knew that things were happening and it wasn't okay to talk about them. There's a wonderful book that I love to reference that's recent by Fintan O'Toole. I don't know if you know it. It's a modern history of Ireland called We Don't Know Ourselves. It just came out last year, and it's really the history of Ireland of the last 60 years. It's a personal history because that's about his his age, or he's you know a little older. But he started, I think, in 1958. There's a phrase he uses called the unknown known. So it's this dissonance between knowing, for example, you know, there's a building and there's brick walls and we know there's girls in there and they're working in the laundries and we know they got, there's some sort of trouble. And then it's never talked about. This is the past. I will jump to say that the present Ireland is very different and much more modern and very socially advanced in some areas beyond the United States. It struck me that the second half of the book, there's a specific power dynamic that almost resembles in its weird way, say, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, if you know what I mean. Interesting. Yes, I do know what you mean. And I kept thinking as I was reading it, of course, in the past, I wonder what I would have thought. But now, of course, it just comes out sharper. It's there from their first meeting, and it's there from what happens in the house, and it's there toward obviously, toward the end of the book. Was that always in the screenplay, or was that one of the areas that you kind of pumped up? That was always there. 
yeah, because I experienced something very similar. And, you know, probably a lot of women have, but I, but I did as a, as a young, you know, a very young woman with no power landing in, you know, a situation where the power dynamic was extremely unequal, but, you know, not necessarily knowing it at the time, because you're not at, at that age, not necessarily aware, or, you know, you're in a different reality. In fact, you know, that was really the the germ of the book. I mean, that was the genesis of the book. Was the place in Northport, was it kind of isolated, like the place near Mendocino? And was there some kind of maze where if you left, you'd get lost and couldn't find your way back? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was really more the, more psychologically. But on the other hand, I didn't really know where I was because I was driven there by, it turns out, by the man who hired me in the New York Times, right? He worked as a businessman in New York City. And I remember driving for hours. I mean, I was mesmerized because, you know, I've just come from Ireland where if you drove for three hours, you'd be on the other side of the country. And I didn't understand that people commuted, you know, they did. And even at that time, commuted hours and hours and hours all the way out Long Island into the city. So that was that was just an aspect that was eye-popping for me. I was driven to this place, and I didn't really know exactly where it was. The California part is kind of an analogy. You were looking and going, where would I place this? And then you thought, aha. Yes. Put it as far away, but it has to be further because the traffic is less. You're not going to be stuck on the Long Island Expressway or Northern Boulevard for four hours. Exactly. Exactly. I really wanted it to be in the country. And then it also had to be, you know, pre, obviously pre-technology, pre-cell phones, you know, pre all of that. Like there was no way, no way to communicate. So it really was, you know, it's isolating and she was isolated. Which brings me to maybe the last question here, which is that when you're setting books toward the end of the previous century, in the 70s or 80s or even early 90s, you have a certain advantage because people can vanish and disappear. You don't have to worry about cell phones, about GPS, about Google Maps. But on the other hand, you're stuck in the past. So for you as a writer, how do you look at that and how do you work your way around all these new contraptions without having somebody driving a car pick your phone out of your hand and throw it out the window and say, now we're on our own, which we've seen a thousand times. I know, I know. I, there's something I like about, I mean, I really wanted San Francisco to be a character in the book, you know, which is why I set it on the West Coast, because my experience, I mean, I felt I could do justice because what the you know, place obviously is very important for everybody, probably, but a sense of place, the, the environment, you know, in some ways, even though there are a lot of dark things happen for Ashling in her San Francisco, it's kind of a love letter to the city. I wanted to create some of that is, you know, the sense of the light and the hope and the, the, the dreams and the possibilities that can come from a place, right, you know, a beautiful place like the Bay Area. Of course, that can happen in New York as well, but I, I know the Bay Area better. You know, that's where I've lived, actually. In this case, still, still live most of my life there, so it still is one of my very important homes. Then getting back to what I just asked in the future, 
how are you going to deal with the fact if you want to write something more contemporary? How do you deal with cell phones, with social media, with texting? Yeah, I guess it depends on the kind of stories you want to write, right? I mean, there's probably, there's lots of books that can be written where it works really well to work in to work in the social media the, the book i'm working on right now you see i'm moving up in time the one i'm working on right now is actually set in almost 1999 because there were some cell phones but not very many and it's actually set in india so it has doesn't have anything to do with ireland i've switched completely in terms of my focus i don't know we'll see we'll see You've been listening to an interview with Gemma Whelan, whose novel is titled Painting Through the Dark. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. 